What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. And before we get into today's conversation with the soft neighbor, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. Number one, if you enjoy today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews we get, the more it helps new people find the show. And it really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of those people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I'm very excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes. And to everybody listening, make sure you screenshot this, post it to your Instagram story, and tag myself at, at the Jacob Kelly, and I'll feature you on my account and send you a message as well. And now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Asaf Nebo. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. And today we are joined by Asaf Neva. And Asaf is the founder of Pico, which provides digital activations for fans that capture data for the teams to use on the back end to better personalize each fan's experience, helping teams shift from one-to-many to one-to-one communication. They have clients in the NBA, NHL, NFL, and were the 2018 winners of the National Sports Forum Tech Tank for the best sponsorship activation technology. Asaf, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jacob. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So where I want to start, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Talk to me about your childhood growing up. Give me a quick rundown on what that was like and whether you showed any entrepreneurial tendencies early on. Ah, that's, that's fun. You know, I, I feel so old now, like I'm 36. So when I'm thinking of my childhood, it sounds so, so far away. Uh, but let's give it a shot. I'm not sure I had entrepreneurial um, like um, skills, like I wasn't, I didn't have this very successful lemonade stand or something like that. Uh, I was very curious about a lot of things and I really like to experience and stuff. So like I played many different uh, um, tools like the drums and guitar and the organ. Um, I really like computers. And again, I'm, I'm old as 36. So when I was 15, the internet just started. I was really curious about it and I really like to learn things by myself. So I spend a lot of my time learning how, how this thing works. Um, I don't know if, if it's, uh, you know, the basic for entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial experience, but it's definitely, I like to break and build things and, and experience on my own. So I believe it has some sort of foundation for that. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but did you have to serve in the military growing up as well? Yeah, that was when I was 18. Everybody in Israel has to serve. Uh, back in the days, it was uh, three years for male and two years for female. I think now it's a bit different, a bit shorter, uh, maybe a bit longer for females, but uh, that, that's how it was when I was in the military. And I served in the Navy. Okay, and what are some lessons you learned during that time? Oh, a lot. I think, um, first of all, a lot about discipline. Uh, which is something that, uh, you know, Army is bringing you a lot into. Um, my specific unit was uh, relatively small. So I had an experience like I like to, to, to be part of a lot of different things, a lot of different parts of the Navy. Um, I would say mostly about teamwork, about stability, stamina, you know, all that. These are all things that the Army is really charging. So. I think it was a good ground for 
for being independent and and to be able to you know to make things happen and so after your three years of service, did you have a plan? Like, did you know what you wanted to do to starting a business, something you wanted to do once you finished your service? Like, did you start Barky right after you finished your service? Um, not right after. I worked at the nightlife industry for something like a year or two. I managed a few big bars, um, you know, around the area of where I live, which is the Haifa Israel. Um, I think that what really caught my, my attention was that as I was working in these bars, I really felt like I want to do it differently. Mostly in terms of uh, bars sometimes have a very, like, you know, dirty, um, how do you say, not a cliche. It's like people look at bars and bar owners and think like, hey, they're always drunk and it's, it's, not, a, it's not a good business. And I really wanted to build something that is clean and that is, you know, paying everything and has all the insurances and such. And, and to prove to myself and to the world that you can actually run a successful bar for a long time without being like a dirty slash sketchy person, you know, just as me as a geek running something like that. So this, this started when I was 23, which is like 18, 24 months maybe after I got off the army. And this is when we started Barkey. It was in 20, 2007. Um, and yeah, we, we were there until 2014. And this is when me and one of my co-founders at Pico, we, he, Roy, used to be my partner at the bar. We decided we want to focus on Pico and we sold our you know, shares at the bar and, and focused 100% on Pico. But yeah, it happened pretty fast. Like I didn't really work anywhere. My, my, my work experience is uh, working as a bartender for uh, two years and washing dishes before that when I was like 16. And I've heard, I've heard you describe that the bar was a really good business school for you. So I'm curious, what are some of those lessons that, that running your own business taught you for you to call it your own form of business school? Um, there are so many, actually. I really think it's the best uh, business school. And I'm fortunate enough that I was able to run through this. I think I also, not, not necessarily, um, I wasn't aware of this, but I actually did it in a relatively good time of my life because I think. I think of now running a bar when I have two kids, probably it's, it's would have made everything much more complicated. But I did that when I used to live at my parents' place uh, and I could afford not getting paid and I could afford to actually build something, uh, you know, with a quiet mind or at least some sort of quiet mind. Um, I think running a bar is probably one of the toughest type of being, you know, self-employed running a business it's probably one of the most complicated businesses out there because even even a restaurant which is on the same industry might be a bit less complicated because bars have like a bit of everything first of all it works only at nights which you need to love you need to love working at night in order to operate this but it has cash flow and inventory and working with banks and working with supply chain and with vendors and with banks uh, i think i said banks already uh, work with regulation, working with the city hall, with the fire department, with the police. Um, it has so many different moving parts, and it's so it's so hard to get everything set up in a way that you can actually start and earn and make a living out of it. It took me almost three years to get to this point when it actually, you know, was were balanced and I was able to actually enjoy it and not only work, you know, every day twenty four seven. And get to there. So, 
I think it's a great experience. I think it's super tough. And I know maybe people who are listening to, to us now talking have a dream of opening a bar to their friends, sitting down, you know, drinking beers. My, my two cents, it doesn't work that way. If that's your dream, you know, find a garage or something, build a small place for you and your friends, but it's not a business. If you want to actually run it and you want to actually make money out of it and, and make a living out of it, has to be a business and to make it a business it's super tough mm-hmm. and i've also heard you say about barky is that most of your traumatic moments in business came when you were running your own bar so do you remember what some of those traumatic moments were and what you learned from them at that time maybe trying to think there's a good there's a good chance i'm i'm you know uh, my, my mind doesn't think about it um pushing it back i remember times at the beginning when I think our infrastructure was not perfect yet, even from, you know, electricity standpoint and things like that, when we started to get busy and there was many people and the, and the kitchen was overloaded with orders, sometimes, you know, the electricity would have shut down because we overloaded it. Things like that. You have like a, a bar full of people and suddenly everything is dark. And you need to, you need to start to find solutions on how you get back the electricity, what caused the, the electricity to go down, things like that. Um, I never had, you know, we never had like, um, problems with police or with, uh, violence or things like that. So we were fortunate enough not to deal with these type of things. So that's not the traumatic part. Um, but I think at least for the first year and a half, I was alone. I had no partners. Like I opened it with partners and they both left at some point. So I stand alone and being alone at the business of work 24 seven. And it's very, it's a very expensive business. So your your runway, your cash flow is is really tight all the time. Uh, this was really probably toughening up. Like I'm, the reason I'm tough today is because of these times. But it was a really bad experience. Like I really, I really had had hard time during that. But you know, looking back, I don't remember this as super traumatic. I just remember this as difficult times, which I'm happy I I went through and passed. You know. Mm-hmm. And so you ran the business for seven, eight years. And like you said, that running a bar is not an easy thing to do. It's really difficult. But if you're running it for that long, you're clearly having success of some kind. So what are some things that enabled Barky to stand out and allow it to be successful? Um, I think, and, and this, is, this is definitely a cliche, right? But I think we were actually true to ourselves. And I think that for, for, for many years, this is the beginning, we tried to make quick successes. You know, to work with this uh, PR agency or or with this uh, person who can bring in more people and, and to make one night uh, like this type of music and one night this type of music. And at the end of the day, we felt like we were sucking into building and creating content all the time to make people happy. And that if we are unable to provide content that they love, they would just not come. And what we had in our vision is the place when people are coming, when they want to meet their friends and when they want to have a good beer. So we decided that instead of working so hard on trying to crack what is the right content that will bring, you know, the biggest amount of people, which will get to the biggest amount of, you know, uh, end of the day uh, um, money in the cashier, we decided to just do what we love to do, which is, um, you know, the, the alcohol industry and the alcohol culture. And we brought in like unique type of draft beers. And, and we really, we really spend a lot on this and, and we try to create a unique experience. So when you're getting to the bar, it's, it's a place you feel home. Everybody knows everybody. Um, and I think when we started to do that, 
as I said before, to be true to ourselves, to build a place that we want to be at, and not necessarily a place that that just think of of what's the best night will bring the, the most amount of people. Um, this what made us like um, sustainable compared to a trend, you know. So this this was I think one of the things that really helped us stood out as as the bar was the you know projection of our characters to the outside, and people related to that, so they came in and. And enjoyed it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but after so after you'd had success with Barky for a number of years, and after I believe it was after you started Pico, you ended up going back to school to finish your degree. And I'm curious as to why you did that. So I I think I'm not sure what the timeline is. I think we started Pico. I was I was at school during the bar, and I don't know for some reason I'm confused about the exact timeline, but I was in school, we started Pico, we had a bar, um, I started to feel overloaded, so I stopped going to school. It was in my third and last year of my underground, uh, undergrad, and um, at some point we decided to sell the bar and only focus on Pico, and I think like maybe a year after I got back to school and I finished it up. The reason I did that was... Um, Mostly because of one um, one of my professors, I actually met her as part. She actually mentored us at Pico at, a, at an acceleration program we participated very early in the days. And she's a professor at the same uh, university I went to. I didn't really know her; like she did, she wasn't my professor, but she she was at the same university. And she like she caught me and said like, "Hey, listen, you're so close to finishing up. Why don't we make like an extra effort and find a way for you to?" graduate successfully so the two years you already invested it wasn't two years it was like two two years and four months or something i was very close to to wrapping up my degree so she said just for you not to not to not to lose the time you already spent um, and she helped me she helped me a lot she helped me understand how to do it how to find time um and she's a good friend today so i'm happy i was able to do that i think my mom is happy i was able to do that so you know, even if I got my mom happy when I was like 32 or three, it's also good, better than nothing. Absolutely. And I'm curious. So before starting Pico, did you ever work on, I found something re, when I, during my research process, I stumbled on some random website. Were you ever working on a location-based social network for dating? Was that something you were working on prior to Pico? Awesome. It's awesome that you found it. It wasn't for dating. It was, we built um, this is this was actually one of our first ventures as part of as part of Barky. We were always playing with some tech because at some point Barky was working so well and we had so much time or free time that we actually started to think of what we want to do next. So we built this app. I think it was called Who's Around, if I'm not wrong, but it was an app that helps you see which of your friends are next to you physically. Which again, today it sounds super obvious, and you could do it over Google and over Facebook. Uh, in twenty, it was probably twenty thirteen or something, um, and it's something we developed just because we we thought it could be cool if you know people inside the bar would actually be able to see who's next to them, who's sitting next to them, um, and be able to be more socialized. But it was something that, beside a very quick and dirty first version of an app, we never got to do anything beside beside that. So it was never live. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And then, so talk to me then about starting P 
Pico? Because Pico, correct me if I'm wrong, started as Pico.buzz, right? It actually started as Pico app. It was a mobile app. And then it changed to Pico Buzz and then Pico, which is today when we found our right market fit and right brand and such. Uh, we started as Pico app, which was, um, it was a photo sharing app. And I don't know if you can imagine this, but looking back, back at 2014, there was no selfies yet. There was no dark faces. It was a completely different space. Uh, it's hard to imagine sometimes, but that, that's how it was. Um, when we started Pico, the, the problem we were trying to solve was that when I got married, I saw that everybody are taking pictures of me and my wife. I was like, you know, at the, um, at the ceremony, all I seen was my friend's mobile phone's flashes. And, you know, I had my photographers taking uh, videos and, and stills of the, of the event. But I said, like, hey, I'm really interested in seeing how does these pictures that all of my friends has, has been taking looks like. And, and what I felt like doing that we wanted to find a way that we can actually get everybody's images, everybody's photos into one place. So me and my wife as groom and bride will be able to see like a collaborative album for everybody. Um, this is how it started. Um, pretty much back in the days, Facebook bought Instagram, which made it really hard to raise money to, for photo sharing app. Um, and this is where we started our evaluation of um, evolvement of the company pivoting, finding the right market fit, et cetera, et cetera. And I do want to talk more about the pivot before then. I want to talk a little bit about the early days of Pico. And so once you, at your wedding, once you're seeing everyone taking photos on their cell phone and you want to get those photos, how long does it take you from having the idea to actually executing on it? Because I feel like people all the time have a lot of good ideas, but not everyone actually takes the time to follow through on those ideas. So how long did it take you to actually start? Uh, it's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure I'm able to put, you know, like a specific time frame, whether it's one or two or three months. I could definitely tell you that I always operated fast as a person. Like when I have something that I'm interested in, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping everything. And that's the only thing I do. That's part of my, one of my good qualities. And probably it's also one of my bad qualities. So I'm unable to disconnect, you know. Um, I think one of the things we have done, which was, um, we could have done better, and we have done this mistake in Pico down the road a few times until we figured it out, is that we ran out and developed too fast. And instead of thinking of what we're trying to develop, we ran out and really started building the product. And when you're talking about people looking and, and want to do, um, want to build a product and have an idea and want to execute, the execution is not always about the product. There's many aspects of what you need to execute on. Um, and we executed on the product. So pretty fast, we got some sort of MVP live. Um, I'm, I'm not like, I, I, studies, I studied the computer science for a few years. I didn't end up uh, finishing my degree, but I am, I am developing. And back then I used to develop a lot, but I'm not, like, I'm not an Android developer, you know? I know Android, I know how to develop for Android, but I don't have experience or wide experience as an Android developer. But I do understand tech. So for me, it was pretty easy to get into the way Android and iOS works and to develop the first MVP. Um, it didn't take a lot of time. I would say a few months at most until we had something we can actually play with. And when you say that there's other things to focus on outside of just the product, what are some of those things and like, what are some of those things you wish you'd focus on, on top of the product at that time? You know, it's, it's pretty hard to look back and say this because I don't, I think when I'm looking at 
at this journey a few years forward, finding the right market fit, doing the right pivots and all that. I think at the end, it's all part of the same journey. So I'm not sure doing things differently would necessarily create a different outcome. Um, so it's a bit hard for me. You know, it's, it's the easiest would be, the easiest thing to say would be, hey, you know, you need to develop less. You need to focus on a relationship with investors. You need to understand what the right market fit is. You need to understand your space. But me personally, as a person, I'm not a big researcher. Right. So for me, sitting down and do the amazing research you have done on me, you know, bringing back apps that I even forgot I developed, I'm not the type of person. And, and it's hard for me to do that. I'm more of a practical, you know, let's run in, let's break walls, let's understand how things are going on, let's, let's develop. And now that I'm doing this for a few years and now my company is bigger and I have much more traction and I'm in a completely different space, I learn how to balance it a bit more. But I'm not sure that I was actually able to do other things. I believe that I wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have the ability to develop on my own and the development space would have cost money, we would actually need to put in money in order to do so, we would probably do more research and we would probably try to understand how do we get money and we'd probably think better on what the value proposition is and who needs this value proposition and what's the competition looks like, all that. We had a product and then we started to go to the market and see what's the, the value proposition, what's the uh, competition and all that after. Um, but I think it's, um, entrepreneurship, it's more, the way I see it, it's more of a character rather than something you can actually learn. So I'm not sure I was able to do things differently. I would definitely do things differently today, but it's, it's not fair because today I have a lot of experience and I failed a lot and, and I rebuilt myself a lot. So, mm -hmm. And so with not having the market, the product market fit before creating the product then, did you identify sports teams as your primary focus early on once you had that MVP created? Or at what point did you start to focus on sports teams? So we started, like I said, as a B2C app. It was, it was aimed for consumers and it was aimed for people who have events, whether it's birthdays, uh, weddings and such, to be able to capture all the moments from, the, from these events. Um, back, back then... We started thinking of raising money and such, and we came across um, we came across Dreamit, which is a Dreamit Philly is a, is an acceleration program in Philadelphia, which we wanted to always go to the U.S. market. And when we got to Dreamit, we kind of like started to sense it was after Facebook uh, acquired Instagram. We started to to sense that maybe we need to do some sort of pivot, and we started to think who could actually benefit from seeing everybody's pictures besides the groom and the bride. And we, we thought that, hey, there is, there is actually um, a value in providing sports teams and, you know, live events and, and corporates who have events, showing them how the event looks from the experience or the eyes of the attendee, then this could actually be a real value to show them that and allow them to have access to this content. And then we started to talk with everybody. So our first big pilot our first big mvp was with the philadelphia marathon in 2014 or 2015 i don't remember yet um but um we focused on brands or corporates who have events which is sports teams music brands and you know uh corporates like coca-cola who provides uh, sponsorships to uh to different uh, sports events or just sponsorship to different parties so this is this was pretty much the first interaction with this uh, with this uh, space. Mm -hmm. And you said how one of the reasons that you ultimately ended up pivoting is once Facebook acquired Instagram. But I watched an old Pico demo from us. I can't remember what year it was, but it was showing how you can use these photos 
if you use the Pico app, so essentially they get the code that they put in their phone that so they don't have to download anything and their photos get put into a Facebook album, right? That's kind of how it worked in, in the beginning. And so how come that integration you don't think worked, even though Facebook had acquired Instagram, how come you think that that, that kind of forced you guys to pivot? No, this specific integration was actually one of our core value proposition that it's a seamless solution, a one-click solution. You take a picture. And then it asks you automatically, hey, do you want to share the picture with this Asaf and Karin wedding? And if you say yes, it automatically uploads this into your Facebook album. Honestly, this feature of creating automated Facebook album is something that we kept for a long time, even at the Pico platform after we pivoted from an app to a SaaS platform. Uh, we kept this functionality as this was, was uh, part of the, of the value our customers wanted. The thing is that once Facebook acquired Instagram, Pitching about the photo sharing app lost all of its all of its power, and the fact that we didn't really have traction or something or budget to bring traction, it was kind of like a chicken and an egg problem. We needed money in order to bring traction, but nobody wanted to give us money because Facebook acquired Instagram. So it was less about the functionality or this or that feature. It was more about uh, the market was maybe too mature or felt like after the peak. So nobody actually wanted to invest. Uh, one of the investors we met back in the days told us, you know, without mentioning names, told us if I'm going to hear about another photo sharing app, I'm going to puke. So this was this was the atmosphere back in the days. <laughs> you can imagine you can imagine how fun it is to go with an event to an investor you were aiming and he's telling you he's going to puke on you. But I I appreciate honesty and it really helped us, you know, take it to the next step. And so then talk to me about when do you ultimately make that decision to pivot? Is it in that meeting when the investor said, if he hears about another photo sharing app, he's going to puke? Like, at what point do you admit to yourself, okay, this current business isn't working, we need to change it up? I think pretty much, I think there's two, two main things during these times that help us change, change our state of mind. This was definitely one of them. It was shocking. It was super funny, but it was also shocking. We had a good laugh and a good cry. Um, this helped us understand that, okay, we need to maybe switch from the B2C to B2B world. And after we switch to the B2B world, uh, we, we were still in Philadelphia and we were able to set up a meeting with uh, the 76ers and their CMO. I don't remember if he's remembering this story. Uh, his name is uh, Tim McDermott. Tim McDermott. And he used to be the Philadelphia uh, 76ers CMO and he's now the president of the Philadelphia Union. Um, and when we met with him, he was a super nice guy. He sat down with us. He, he saw what we can do. He understands the value and he's also a very smart guy. And he told us, listen, guys, I really want you guys can offer. Like as a value, I want it. But I will never be able to help you get in because the fact you guys are, are an app, it means that I have to tell my fans to go and download the app. And this is something I will never do these times because we have spent so much on building the 76ers app and we're spending so much money on promoting the 76ers app that it just doesn't make sense for me. So from a value standpoint, you're spot on. From an operational standpoint, I will never be able to use that. And unless you guys find a way to either integrate inside our app or find a different way, way to provide the same value, I'm just unable to use you from an from a operational standpoint, right? The challenge here was, was execution operation and not, and not because he like or dislike what we're offering. And this, this conversation with him um, 
got us back into the into you know sitting at the table and think and scratch our heads and and say like okay how could we provide the same value without without the app without actually taking the photo because taking the photo was a fundamental thing in the way the process works how could we maybe find this picture elsewhere and this is this is where our big pivot actually started this is where we started to understand the operational side of the market fit not only the product market fit. Mm. So with the pivot then, it wasn't necessarily like you guys just sitting in a room and trying to figure out what to pivot to. It was as you just developed a product, you uncovered different needs and other ways you could provide value to these businesses that made sense for Pico and its mission. It's actually, the need was pretty identical to what we had in the first place. It was more about the how. Like the what? Yeah, I want to get these pictures. The question was how I get these pictures. I mean, as, as the 76ers, you know, stayed in mind. So we, we kind of like cracked the what pretty early. The value we, we had was something people were interested in. The how we do it was bad. And this is what we had to change. Okay. And then so talk to me then about making that change. You're talking about the current version of Pico. So how did you shift from the photo sharing app to the app today where you provide digital activations for fans? Yeah. So it's not even, this, this also even evolved. It's not like we're providing a digital, a digital activations. What we do with it, we, our platform is, is a, a, a data-driven fan marketing platform. So the whole goal here is to help sports teams to first identify who their fan base are and then to continuously add more information about them using activations. That's one of our tools, but to add more data about them and then to create a life or a long-term value from this. The ability to learn who your fan base, what their unique preferences are, helps you retarget them and, and reach back to them with the offers and the content that they're actually interested in. Uh, I can speak more about how what's the current industry situation, but let's let's wait with this for a second. When we understood that we need to find a way to bring content elsewhere, you know, we decided that okay, we were very focused on creating the content, meaning you know to take the picture someone just posted or someone just took in his mobile phone, and we said most of these pictures, or at least the pictures people want to share with the world, are exist on Facebook. Instagram was not that strong yet, although Facebook acquired it. Most of the things happened on Facebook during these years. So we said, okay, what if we can provide you with a platform that goes down to social media and search for content based on specific context? For that matter, I want to see all the pictures uh, fans took from the 76ers stadium, from the Wells Fargo stadium. This, was the, this is what we try to solve. And, and my, Aviv, my co-founder, our CTO, sat down and, and find a way to find content over Facebook, a legit way, not something he had to scrape or steal, a legit way to work with Facebook APIs, connecting all the dots using technology, and being able to filter the right images based on specific location and specific context. So we were able to bring in pictures to this organization, and then later take these pictures and create these Facebook albums. And then later on, we evolved to, hey, let's put it on the Jumbotron in the stadium. Fans could actually see themselves. They just posted a selfie over Facebook. Let's take this image and put it on screen if they made it public and if they allowed us to do that. Uh, and this was the first involvement from a photo sharing app to something more um, tech-based on, on being able to find the content on, on, on its own. I would say that's the first step of the big pivot. And then one of the next big moments for you guys, I'm assuming, must have been when Facebook released their API for their Messenger, correct? Uh, yeah, pretty much at that time. The thing that happened is that 
back in the days before the Cambridge Analytic crisis, um, you were able to get the image that someone posted, but also a lot of data about them. So from seeing your image, image could be a great entry point for me to learn more about you. So if you posted something from a stadium, I could actually see your profile and then I can analyze your profile and see where you're actually posting more pictures from and kind of like build the profile on who you are. And we enabled, this was the next generation, we enabled teams to learn from content about who the fans are. So I was able to create a profile out of Jacob, out of your Facebook identity, that was pretty, pretty straightforward and they could actually use it to retarget you with ads and such. The problem in all this story that I could have done all that without actually getting you into the process. So all this could have happened just by you posting an email. And what we wanted to do, we, want to, we wanted to get you back in. We wanted to make sure that you are engaging with the team and not only, not only the team finding your content, it's you are now communicating with the team and, and letting your voice being heard and creating a more personalized experience for you, allowing you to talk directly with the team and provide your inputs on, on different things. And when Facebook started with the Messenger API, we said, hey, that's, that's a great way to start and have fans actually activating in front of the team instead of just passively, you know, the team finding their images. Uh, and yeah, this was a big moment. We didn't understand yet exactly how the points are going to be connected. We didn't understand exactly that when we were studying something over Messenger, a voting or an activation or trivia, whatever, uh, we can actually then find a way to ask you, hey, Jacob, you know, if you're going to win, what's your preferred merchandise or what's your email address and, and actually find a way to collect data about it. At that point, we just said, okay, this is a super cool thing. We can connect it to everything else we're doing. It could be connected to the Jumbotron. It's another way of making fans in the stadium happy. It goes, it goes great with sponsors. Um, and that was the, the biggest uh, starting point of the actual, I would say, data-driven marketing because you were to engage with us and then we would have reached back to you over Messenger. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so now with, since Camera Analytica and everything's happened, how are you still able to collect that data for markers if you can, because you're not, obviously can't pull quite as much data as you used to. So how do you get that data for marketers and for teams today? So, so first of all, we don't pull data at all. What we do is that we are, uh, we are helping the fans share data with the team. So the context of everything we do we always represent the team. The fan doesn't know that there is a Pico engine on the back end, right? And, and when you are, uh, let's go back with the Sixers, when you are a fan of the Sixers and the Sixers are now playing at the playoff and we are going to ask you at their Facebook page, you will see a post saying, who do you think is going to score the first three-shooter tonight? Click here to play and you click it and the game starts. And in this game, we are asking you, hey, Jacob, um, who is your favorite player at the team? We're just interested to know because if you're going to win, we're going to send you a jersey of him. Um, this helps us understand who you are and it helps us build a better profile for you. And when the team knows that Jacob likes uh, this and this player, it helps them reach back to you in the future with content and offer that is more relevant for you. So the Cambridge Analytics was really focused on making sure ad targets goes to the right emotional state of you. We are doing this only for making sure that the team is actually engaging with you in a way that is better for you, that is more interesting for you. Yeah, so, so Cambridge Analytica was all about finding who you are, pulling data about you, and then target you with ads based on your emotional state and such to kind of like create a fake reality to, to affect your, your election at this 
at this specific stage. What we do is more of we don't pull data about you. We are making these experiences, these activations that help us understand better who you are during these games. So if you're playing uh, uh, who's going to score tonight goal or who's going to score tonight touchdown game, um, this is where you're engaged. And when you're engaged, we will ask you questions we want to learn. Things like what's your email address or who is your favorite player or what's your merchandise preferences, et cetera, et cetera. The idea is that when you're engaging, when you're happy with the team, it's easier for you to share information. We never take or use information that you didn't explicitly share with us and allow us to store. Once you do so, we're building a profile around you that helps the team then retarget you and, and reach back to you with relevant offers content. And so with being able to provide brands with all of this information, I have another quote. I think it's two quotes actually written down here from you. And I'm curious if you can just contextualize like how big of an issue this is. And it's that the real problem for teams is that they don't really know who they're engaging with. Teams don't know who the digital fans are. It all stays in the likes and comments and shares. Like how big of an issue from, from your perspective, have you seen it with teams not truly knowing who their fan base is? So you mean like how, how big is it? Or how yeah, like big, how like how really yeah, like how yeah, how big and how real is this problem that you guys are solving? So I would say, I I would say it's huge. It's uh, it's now even bigger than always. When we started talking about that, when we kind of like cracked down that this is what we are solving, it was let's say eighteen or maybe twenty four months ago, two years ago, and it was big. And we were when we came to teams and we showed them the numbers, they would usually be like surprised. The thing was that they still were very focused on the game day as the game day bringing broadcasting rights, bringing sponsorship, bringing in ticket sales. So the focus was on what we call the identifiable fan base, which means fans who bought tickets or merchandise or things like that. And they exist in the team's database. And what happened during COVID-19 actually showed team that we were always right. And that if you don't know who you're engaging with, and you always keep it in, in like and comments and shares. And suddenly you don't have data about people coming to the stadium because nobody's coming to the stadium anymore. And nobody knows when it's going to end. You have to start and understand who these people are. And when you are comparing numbers, a big team, like a, an NFL, an NBA team, a Bundesliga team, a Premier League team, let's take the biggest gap, okay? A Premier League team, the bigger names, would have like 1 or 10 or 11 million fans in their internal database, but they can have up to 100 or even 500 million fans around the globe following them. Huge numbers. You don't need to be a you know, mathematic professor to understand that the gap is huge. The average team um, could have half a million people in their fan base and maybe 30 million fans out there. So it, the gap is, is somewhere between 90% to 98% of unidentifiable fans. So teams usually know 2 to 10% of their fans. When I'm saying no, it means that they have data about them in their platform, in whatever CRM or ERP they're using. It's crazy. There's no, there's no equivalent to that in any other type of business. And the reason why this, this actually happened is because sports is very noisy by nature. And, and sports has this unique good uh, position when fans are actually looking to engage with you. As, as this podcast is aimed for people who you know, deal a lot with social media, you probably know like how hard it is to, to bring in audience and how expensive it is to bring in people. If you have a Facebook page or a Facebook business, the user acquisition cost is very, very high. 
and you have to pay a lot of money to get exposure on Facebook. Sports teams got all, get all this for free. People are looking to engage with them. People are looking to consume content. I think sports is the second highest, has the second highest engagement rates across all other, uh, you know, um, industries in social media. And the fact that fans are so engaged by nature, this is what caused this gap in the first place. Because sports teams have so many different channels. They can operate on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on the app, on the website, on WeChat, on Weibo, on text messages, on emails, all at the same time, all by the same department. And, and they're spending so much on engaging with fans, but they're not spending enough on understanding who these people are. And when, again, when I'm saying understanding, it's not about understanding the aggregated information Facebook provides. It's about knowing who Jacob is and what Jacobs care about and knowing who Asaf is and what we care about and what's our passion is. And how they can leverage the fact that I'm doing everything I can to engage with the team to provide the maximum value, both for, for the team, but also for me to have a good experience with them. They don't have this problem because fans are so engaged. And because fans are so engaged, the gap is so big. And for many years, they were not focused on owning this data. So Facebook owned this data, Twitter owned this data, Instagram owned this data. The teams does not. And this is where, this is where COVID-19 performed an accelerator in the market actually start and moving teams to a more data-driven um, approach, owning the data first and then making decisions accordingly. Mm -hmm. And so with talking about how big of an issue this is and how you're saying how they, they have all these fans, but they don't truly know them, do teams realize how big a problem this is from your experience? Or do you kind of have to educate teams on this problem when you're trying to sell them on the platform? Or are you kind of showing up and this is a problem they have and they've been looking for a solution and you're the perfect fit? In the past, we needed to more educate them. So everybody understands it's a problem. Okay, the, pro the, the question is how urgent it is. Uh, a year ago, it, for some teams, it was super urgent, and for some teams, it was not super urgent. Now, everybody's running out for solutions. Everybody. Every pitch you will hear, every lecture you would hear, every webinar you would hear from leagues, uh, teams, and um, you know, executive in the industry will be around knowing your digital fan base. Everybody. And, and one of our, one of our um, good luck is that during COVID-19, we were able to grow while other sport tech companies folded, went home or just shrink. We grew because our value proposition was spot on to what the market needed. And we executed very fast. As I mentioned before, this is one of our expertise. We executed very fast on getting big market fit, a big, uh, sorry, big market share. And, and it worked perfectly. And team are now starving for a solution in this space. And so what, is it, what does it look like for brands? Like when I log into Pico, do you have like a dashboard or something with the different social platforms on it? Like what does it look like physically if I'm a brand using it? So you would log into Pico, you would connect your accounts or you can integrate us inside your website. There is like a one line of code you need to put in your website or in your app. And then we are connected. Once we are connected, we can start and suggest you which activation you should launch. Building an activation is super simple. Uh, you just choose the content it's going to be connected to and you choose the content of the activation and that's it. And then you can, you can publish it and fans could play. And, and it really is simple. It, it's a matter of minutes before you can go live. And so what kind, when with pushing out these activations, do you kind of put a cap on the type of content fan or teams can send out to fans? Like a lot of your stuff is used for data capture. Do you allow teams to send out messages for brand awareness or just content pieces? Or does that dilute the effectiveness of the platform? So you mean as part of the activation or later on when we are uh, reaching back to them? 
Yeah, just like if I'm a team and my team created this really cool video and I've been using Pigo to engage with fans through these activations, but we just made this really awesome video and I want to send it to all of my fans. Is that something they can do through Pico? Yes. Will that kind of, they can do that through Pico? Yes, and it, but it will require some, some first steps. So when they're engaging with fans using the activations, we, they will have to subscribe fans to these updates. So we don't want to spam fans. We want to make sure we're providing you with the content you want to see. And after you subscribe, we even have a, a further step of drilling down uh, so you can actually decide to push a message to fans who subscribe to this you know, content, this type of content, but also based on uh, players they like the most. So we will recommend teams to send the video highlights only to fans who are actually excited about this player and only subscribe. So yeah, technically, yes. Uh, there's a lots of steps in the way we're trying to make it successful for them. So. Our success team is focused on making sure that they will not use this as a spam tool, but more as we want to make sure fans are actually exposed to what they're interested in. Mm -hmm. And can you do any automations with Pico or do you have to kind of mainly send all of the messages? Like how do like, for example, say um, I had an example written down here um, with Dortmund because I knew I saw stats somewhere that I think it was like Dortmund had 33 million followers, but they only knew um, where is it here? Like about ha half a million, so about 2% of their audience. So say, for example, say I'm Dortmund and I send out a chatbot that learns someone likes Marco Reyes. Could I have an automated message to send later on that once it identifies who's that favorite player, is it automatically sends them a message with their jersey or something to buy? Or is it all of it manually, like determining what percentage of the audience to send different messages to? No, no, you can do it either manually or automatically. And also during the activation itself, we can build different layouts of activations to different type of fans. So if you like Holland, you can see a different flow in the way the activation will look for you. And if you like Rios, you would see a different flow. And you would have, you know, when we're reaching back to you, we will be reaching back with a different content. So everything is automated and everything is customizable. Mm -hmm. And I have some results here. Now, these could be older statistics, so please feel free to update any of these if I have them wrong. But um, with this, you have an average thing of 30%, you have a 90% completion rate compared to a 30% completion rate at most for the industry average. A click-through rate of 35% on each offer, which is roughly 10 times better than the competition because MailChimp reports about 3.1% click-through. 9% conversion rate on merchandise and ticket offers compared to the average of about 2 to 4%. These are all these are all right and we're very proud of. Yeah, and so they're phenomenal numbers. So why is Pico able to deliver these results and so consistently? Is it the personalization that you offer? Like what allows you to hit those numbers time in and time again? So let's let's break it down one by one. The completion rate refers to how many people actually started an activation, ended the activation, and shared the proper information with us. So if we had a goal of getting your email address, how many people who actually participated end up sharing their email address with us, okay? The reason why 90% does that is because when you're comparing what we do to other enter to win or other platforms who uses, you know, external apps requires download or uh, logging to other websites or even just re being redirected to other websites, these are all creating tons of drop-off. But with Pico, you can see a Facebook post. When you click it, you're, you're staying inside Facebook, right? And you're playing it inside Facebook. So from a, from a fan standpoint, the journey is seamless, right? So there is no drop-off point here. And also, we are very good at creating engaging activation that want to help you share the data with us. So we might have a good incentive 
that will help you share the data with us. We might ask you the question at the right time. We will even let you play even if you don't share the data with us. So it's not, it's not, it, it does not feel like, like, like a mandatory, unpleasant, you know, process when you feel that you have to give us your email address in order to play. You know what I'm saying? There's no forms. You don't need to fill anything. You don't need to log in anywhere. The experience is very seamless. This is one of our core value, and this is what creates a very high completion rate. The second thing is about the click-through rates. And this goes, like you said, into the personalization. And another word, personalization is a very buzzy word, might be even overused. But because we are data-driven and because we make sure that we are putting offer in, an offer in front of you because we know that you're interested in this offer, this is why there's such a high chance that you will actually click it, right? So I would put in front of you a video that I know that you are interested of and you already expressed your interest of receiving video from me. That compared to sending out an email blast to all fan base without segmenting anything, right? I'm making sure I'm sending out the offers to people who explicitly said that this is something that they're interested in. And because of that, there's high chance that they will actually click it. My audience is super segmented. And that's what our, that's our, one of our core value propositions. Same thing with the conversion rate. If I'm sending you to buy a jersey, I will not just send you to the store and say, hey, there's 20% discount. I will send you directly to the page of the products that you express interest of. And if I know who's your favorite player, I will also already send you to your favorite player product page with the discount already you know, implemented inside. So all you have to do is just click yes and finish up the purchase. I'm we are leaving very small margin for you to actually decide to back off. You know? we, are, we are taking you directly to the place that you express in the past that you're interested in. So, and that's why we also have high satisfaction level, which is also important. And now talk to you about growing Pico as, as a company. So you mentioned earlier how when you came to Philly, one of the big breaks was when you were talking and you worked with the 76ers. But now once you've made the pivot to the current iteration of the platform, you ended up getting into Stadia Ventures, I believe. So one of your first major clients with these new activations with the St. Louis Blues, right? Right. Yeah. And then from there, so you have your first major client with the St. Louis Blues. How then do you grow from there? How do you start adding additional clients on top of that? So first of all, there is a snowball effect. Once you have one and you have some case studies and success stories, it's easier to go out. Uh, the Blues are, I we have a lot of friends in the industry. I would say the Blues are, are the closest one. Um, we have a deep personal relationship with, with all of the management over there. They were very supportive with us at the early days and we have been very supportive with them, you know, as we group. We always make sure they, they get everything first and, um, Honestly, I'm, I'm not that involved personally in most accounts beside, beside the Blues um, because I have a personal relationship with everybody there. Um, and I think once we identified and kind of like cracked the, the right market fit, it was just easier. And it was easier to come into teams and, and show them numbers we have done and successes we have made and get them on board. The COVID-19 was a big accelerator. As like I said, the market is now starving for solution like this. So uh, the, the cycles are shorter. You need less emails, less phone calls to make it happen. And the fact that we have already a lot of traction in, I would say, every major, almost every major league in the European and Canadian and American leagues, um, it, it speaks for itself. So teams don't have lots of hesitation when, when talking about starting to work with us. 
I saw, speaking of COVID, I saw a report somewhere that, so once the pandemic initially hit, did you make Pico free for a little bit? Yeah, we did like a two month. It ended up being two to three months with teams. We onboarded them and we really wanted to help them. We wanted to show them that first we understand that they took a hit and we understand fans took a hit. And you have to remember in March, March and April, teams were super confused. They have no idea what to write about. Nobody knew what's going to happen with teams. Nobody acquired, nobody, nothing happened. And we came in and say, okay, let's use this time to create fun experiences. Let's do throwbacks. Let's do trivia questions. Let's make fans still engage. And during the process of engagement, we're going to help you also create sponsored activations. So we're going to help you make your sponsors happy as they also took a big hit. And at the end of the day, we will help you as a team to start and learn who these fans are. So in the future, you would have databases that will help you go through this pandemic in, in, you know, in an easier method. You would be able to actually understand who these people are and by that to engage with them better and find opportunities. From a business perspective, why go, why go for free for the first couple months? Because clearly at that point in time, teams are they're almost desperate at that point and they need the value and the data that you're providing. So why make the decision still, despite knowing that you're probably going to see an uptake in people interested in the platform anyways, why go free? We decided that this is a big opportunity for us to grow. We knew that if we get in and provide value, money will come. And we also knew that teams took a big hit. They didn't know when games are going to come back. They didn't even understand back then what the hit's going to look like. Either either they're going to get money from uh, broadcasting rights or not, how the sponsorship revenue are going to look like. There are so many question marks. We didn't didn't want to overload. Uh, Lots of the team took a very big financial hit and probably couldn't have pay pay us anything. So instead of putting this as a negotiation, we just said, we are here to support you. And, and we will support you. And it, there's no commitment here. We just want to show you how we can help. And fortunate enough, you know, we've done a good job and all the teams are working with us. So um, I think it was a good decision. And I think although they were starving, I think their financial ability to pay was very low. And instead of scratching some dollars, we, we chose to postpone and wait and, and wait a bit for the market to come back to life and be able to show them the value during these, you know, rough times. Mm-hmm. And then I saw somewhere too that you were onboarding about five, five new clients per week at that point. So obviously like things were very busy for your team as well during this period. And then of course, with not the extra revenue coming in for the first couple of months as well, because you're doing a lot of it for free. How kind of speak to the, speak to your team a little bit and them, despite being in an uncertain world with this global pandemic, something most people have never, ever experienced but your team is still there putting in a lot of work. So kind of speak to me about just the team that you have in place at Pico and the work they put in during this time. So first of all, we also raised money during the pandemic, partly because of what we said about the revenue, but also because we had a very good momentum and we were able to prove. And that definitely goes, you know, this goes only to the amazing team we have at Pico that were able to execute on, on the uncertain time when everybody worked from home, everybody had kids at home, you know. It was, it was super hard, and these people, these amazing people, decided to put all of their can, all of all, everything they can in order to, to make sure our customers and our growing clientele base would be happy. And for that, you know, I, I'm humbled to have and be able to work with these type of people. Um, but also, this is what brought in investors to come and invest with us as we prove that 
even during rough times, we know how to execute and we know how to execute properly. So um, our team is located, most of it located in Israel, but we also have a team in the United States. Uh, and all of these just work around the clock to provide the high demand we saw. And so, again, correct me if I'm wrong, if you don't want these numbers out there, I could pull them out after. But so prior to COVID, I believe you did, you'd raise 1.4 million and then you did a, a third round for $3 million most in May, very recently. What were some of the challenges of raising funds and raising capital in a COVID world? Because clearly it's completely different, probably a lot of Zoom calls and everything at that point. It's like, how, what were some of the extra challenges and hurdles you had to overcome raising money in, most in May when COVID was, was arriving in the world and everything was upside down? So, so the round didn't start when COVID started. It started much earlier, right? We got final step of the round like at the end of February. I was in Germany at the end of February for closing meetings. And then when I got back to Israel, it was beginning of March, uh, we got into lockdown and the Bundesliga just stopped and everything stopped. And obviously this took us to a longer closing period of the investment. So it took longer to close. And there was like, the deal was supposed to be closed in March, but it ended, ended up closing in May because I think inv the investors uh, who participated in this round were also confused, which is completely legit in this time and also had to check what's happening with their other investment, whether they need to deploy more cash over there. And also they wanted to see how this affects us. And I think that the fact that we were able to actually show during this time that we are continuously growing, this was, I think it was surprising for us, but it was definitely surprising and, and, and you know, compelling for them. So they decided to end up and close the deal and invest. So it's not like we started raising money during COVID. We started earlier. We went through due diligence and everything, but we were supposed to close it pretty much when pandemics, when the pandemic started. And, and now we just, uh, the pandemic showed them, you know, what we're really made of and the fact that we were able to, to run and, and execute when things are tough. And when you're looking for investors in the company, what are you looking for in an investor? Are you looking for whoever's bringing the most amount? Are you looking for whoever's taking a specific percentage of the company, people with certain connections or from a certain industry? Like, what do you look for in an investor? I think it really depends on the stage of the company. At the beginning, it was, it was a combination of we need some capital and we also need some knowledge. Um, as we grew, I think, you know what? It's, it's always both. I'm thinking of what I want to say. It's always both. At every stage, there's different challenges. Every stage brings different type of investors, like the stage that we're now at. The investors are always big VCs and corporate VCs and people who, um, who actually build companies, exit with companies, uh, made big things. Um, the earlier investors we had, like the smaller VCs or the, or the angel groups, most of them were more focused on the beginning of, of you know, um, putting capital in something, but they were not super relevant to the growth stage. They're more relevant to the beginning stage when you're finding the right market fit and such. Um, so I would say in every stage, you're looking for someone who can help you get to the next step and help you understand better. But honestly, the answers are always relies, you know, within. We need, we need to understand it our own. But good investors know how to guide us to find these, these answers and knows, you know, what's important and what's not. But I'm just curious and not, not, of course, not saying the number, but reflecting on whatever that number is, the valuation of the company, 
Does that number mean anything to you? I was watching an interview recently where someone said the valuation doesn't matter unless you're raising funds or selling the company. So how like does that number mean anything to you right now? I wouldn't say it's meaningless. Um, I think it actually means a lot. It definitely means a lot when you're raising money or thinking about selling the company. Um, I think it's not the only things that matter, right? So for some investors, it's worth lowering down valuation because they want to get them in. And for others, it's worth you know, um, negotiating on everything. It's not that it doesn't matter. It matters. It's just not the most important thing. It is important for us to provide returns to our investors. So people who put in money, even if they put in you know, $50,000 at the early days, it's important for us to show that the company is growing. One of our ways of showing that the company is growing is to show that the valuation grows, that we're able to raise money at higher valuation, that we're able to show new type of investors, that we're able to show corporate investors interesting in us, interested in us as this could show potential exit strategies. So it's all part of everything. Like you can't completely detach it from, from everything else. I know it makes sense. I hope it answers, answers your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what are, what are some of your long-term plans for Pico? What's kind of your vision look like right now? So we are super focused now on two things. The first one is deeper integrations inside the team's infrastructures. So we have a partnership in place with SAP on putting Pico as part of their, um, it's called App Store, it's part of their, like a joint value proposition of SAP and Pico, where SAP is very good on uh, on making the, you know, the, the full fan journey from buying tickets and merchandise and marketing and all that. And Pico is going to add an additional layer of all the digital data we provide. And we do the same thing with Microsoft, with Microsoft Dynamics. Um, so that's one thing, making it super seamless for, the teams to actually integrate Pico as part of their day-to-day and, you know, enable all organization units to use the data we provide. That's one aspect. The second aspect is that we are very, we are growing fast horizontally inside every team. So as we started to work with many teams, we find, we found new problems we could solve using our technology. So we are focusing a lot on how we can actually provide solutions for these. So we're building products for the content team to create better content and content that is focused on actually bringing data and value. We are building products for the CRM departments on how to better segment fan bases and such. We are building products for the sponsorship departments to help them manage the funnels of sales for sponsors and how to rely on data we provide in order to, you know, to create a better sponsorship experience. So we're kind of like shooting, shooting our hands all directions now because there is an opportunity with all the organizations we're working with to provide even deeper integrations of everything we do. With building out all of these new products, obviously odds are you're going to have to bring on new people to help do that. So I'm curious what your approach is to scaling culture and what the, the culture is like at Pico right now and how being in a COVID world makes it more challenging to scale culture. Um, it's a good question. And I think, I think one of the things we are... One of the challenges we have is to actually define and build this culture as, as we are, you know, we grew fast. And as I said, we're not always as good as be doing the research as, as much as we're good at, at, you know, breaking down walls and moving forward. Now we kind of like were forced to sit down and start thinking of the company's culture and the policies and all that, which is, which is a good thing. It's a healthy process. Um, I think COVID-19 brings in lots of opportunities for us. 
especially in the sports and entertainment space, who got a big hit. So there are so many talents out there and they're seeking for jobs and they're hungry and they're excited and they, and they understand the market sometimes better than we do. And uh, like uh, one of our recent hires was, was Lisa and she, she's part of our uh, success manager team, success uh, management team as, as like a start strategist, how to run with the teams. And she used to work with the Seattle Seahawks. And she's a super expert. She used to work with us as a director of marketing over there. And she liked what we were doing. And when she decided to leave the Seahawks, she, we reached out to her. She reached out to us. So it was a perfect fit. So I think it's really helpful for us, the fact that there's so many great people out there now. Um, I think COVID is somehow an advantage as physical location is less relevant. And it's more about what you can actually provide. Obviously, it has some complexity and, and some challenges, but at the end of the day, you know, um, everybody could work from everywhere. And as long as they can provide value, why not? I'm big on quotes, as you can probably tell, because I have another one written down here. And it's kind of similar to what you were talking about with your own personality. But you were talking about the team at Pico and you said, we move fast and break things and we go back and fix them. Don't be afraid to break things. Can you explain that quote? Why you don't want your team to be afraid to break things? Um, you know, I think it's part of life to break things, to make mistakes. You sometimes cry about these mistakes. You wash your face, then you move on. It just it doesn't work the other way around. And and I think you have to take into account that if you want to build something big, the nicer word for that would be to do optimization. What optimization means? It means you do something and then you measure what you've done. Sometimes you've done it bad and you fix something in order to make it better. So I might have been saying it in a very, you know, Israeli approach of saying it on a negative as it is type of thing, but that's pretty much what optimization is. You run fast, you try something, you see the responses, you're either right or either wrong and you fix it. You see how it works. So I think that's what I usually mean when I'm saying that. I think being able to contain failure is one of the the most important characterism an entrepreneur must have. Failing is part of the game. It's part of life. There's no one who never fails. And if you are taking failures too strongly, then you're going to have a really rough time being an entrepreneur. And speaking of failures, I've heard you say that you, it's important to measure everything, including measure your customer interactions, measure errors, and measure failures. What do you mean by measuring them, and why is it so important? I think that as, as much as you can be scientific about things and work less about, you know, it's more of the, uh, the, the how, it's more of how could you actually quantify things rather than how could you actually provide quality values to things. If you're able to put things in numbers, then you can always have a good understanding of where you stand. Are you in a good spot or in a bad spot and where are you aiming? It's not always easy to perform as I might be saying this, but you have to measure things because you have to know what's working and what's not. And even if something's working, it may be, maybe easily it will work better. Uh, if you don't measure, you live under hunch. And it's pretty much, you know, like we were saying about the sports industry. They don't know who their fans are, so they can't measure anything. If you don't measure anything, you don't know if you're performing well or not, and you can be under this perception that everything is okay. And then there is a world pandemic, and you're screwed. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to kind of like understand always where you are. 
And how important is one-to-one communication with your users? Because when I think of measuring, like this could just be a personal thing, but when I think of measuring, I think of looking at an aggregation of all of the data and seeing and looking at different trends and opportunities that way. But how important is one-to-one feedback in communication with your clients? Um, It's super important. We're doing our best to make it, you know, as consistent as possible and as um, easy for both sides as possible. Um, I think we're doing a pretty good job at this. We can definitely do it better, but but I think it's super important. At the end of the day, people work with people, especially now. Um, and you have to make a good experience to your customers to enable them to make a good experience for their, uh, you know, for their fans. So it's super important. Maybe the number one, the number one important thing. Mm-hmm. And for you personally. I appreciate that your life agenda is that there's no such thing as an unsolved problem. Can you explain why that is? Um, I don't know why, but it just I always have I always have another another solution or another thing I'm willing to test. Like I'm always the, the, the place that I'm that I'm really, you know, miserable at is that when I'm feeling hopeless. And I'm feeling hopeless when I don't have ideas for for things that I could also try. So although I think I'm pretty good at failing, I always have something in my sleeve. So I might have been failing with that, but I will try something else. I will, I will, I will find a solution. When we were at Dreamit, uh, the managing director of Dreamit said about us that, you know, the Pico guys don't know everything yet, but they will definitely die trying. So I'm always pushing forward and I always have another idea and another solution. And, and that's why I think everything is solvable. Is it true that one of your passions is to hopefully one day be able to help small, medium-sized business owners grow their companies? Yeah, that's that's my that's a personal wish. I hope that that Pico will grow and be successful. And I really, you know, hundred percent of my passion and time is at Pico. But my my dream for the next phase of my life would be to to be able to invest in small businesses or medium businesses who are very good at what they do from a professional standpoint, but not very good at managing their business. I think there's, at least in Israel, and I believe in the States, it's the same thing. There's a very thick layer of businesses who are running for a few years. Like, you know, let's take a small development company, like a product development or mobile development. You can have like a four-people studio, and the founder of this company could be a great guy, he could be a great tech-savvy, he could be a great CTO, but he's not necessarily a good CEO and he's not necessarily a good director. And, and when they're not, then they're very focused on managing the technical side of their business, but they're not managing their growth. Sometimes they have problems with, with available cash and with the way they're managing. And I think there's so much potential on taking these organizations or these small businesses and help them um, kind of like understand how things should work and help them build the framework and the workflows that will help them grow to make them, at the end, focus on what matters the most for them, which is the professional side. Um, and I think I'm very good at this. So I think this is something I could bring to the table, and I'm, I hope I will be fortunate enough to be able to have a sufficient fund to actually invest in these businesses, as I think there's a big business opportunity here to build, to build some sort of an investment fund for a very sp- there, it's a very specific stage in the life cycle of a business that either the founder is getting tired at some point and go home, or he's able to bring in more partners to help him grow, or that he's just you know 
lucky enough growing native. But, but there are so many businesses at that stage that it's super interesting for me and I think I could do magic over them. That's amazing. I love that. That's incredible. And before I let you go, I want to ask you the same standard set of questions that I ask everybody at the end of every interview. I used to call it rapid fire, but people say these aren't really rapid fire type questions. Then I started calling it the Q&A, but this whole podcast is a Q&A, so that made no sense. So I don't have a, a title for this section. But the first question is, you're going to dinner. You can take three people. It can be anybody dead or alive. Who do you take to dinner? Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. Um, who would I take for dinner? I would say no, that's a rough one. Let's try to do to do it on elimination. I'm not that I'm not that looking up at people. I'm not looking down for sure, but I'm not. There's not many people I'm looking up to. So I would say, you know, this is super inspiring for me. These people are super inspired for me. So it's not like I have a list in my mind of people I would love to sit down with. I think um, I would love to sit down with someone from the past, like the real past. People who maybe fought at, you know, World War II or something. Things that I can't really understand and learn more about. Historical moments. So let's say, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the story. No, I, I don't remember its name. But I would say, let's say someone from the past. I would love to talk with, um, yeah, you know, I don't have anything anything good in mind. <laughs> That's okay. I, I know, and, I think, and I think the reason for that is, you know, dead people for sure. but. As, as I'm coming from Israel, which is usually globally far away from every market I'm working at, we just have this ability to kind of like reach out and find a way to talk with anyone we pretty much needed. So it's not like I have a list of people I was unable to get in front of, beside the people who are not alive. But I'm sorry I'm not, I'm sorry I'm not enlightening in, the, in this way. That's okay. That is okay. The next question. Is what is some of the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, this one good. Um, I think the the best one when I'm looking at Kiko, right? I think the thing with the 76ers is definitely the best advice. You know, I like the value. Bring me it in a different solution. Um, I can tell you some bad advice I got. I don't know if it's the follow-up question. But no, I bad advice is great. I have a lot of bad advices I, I got and I, I was fortunate enough to not to listen to. When I opened the bar, as I, as I mentioned, I, had, I was relatively young and I had this dream of building this place, which is super clean and everything is super or, organized and that. Um, and many people told me like, hey, kid, you're, you're, you're cute, but you don't really understand how the world works. I mean, if you want to succeed in the bar businesses, you have to be a bit dirty. And I always say, like, I don't want to be dirty. And, you know, if, and that's also maybe answering the first question, people I would like to sit down with today are people who told me that I'm wrong back then. Not because I want to brag. It's more because I want to show them how, how it actually worked out and get their feedbacks on what maybe, what maybe they could have done better, or what maybe they had in mind when they said that this could happen, couldn't happen. So, um, I got a lot of bad advices, especially on the on on the beginning of tracks when you're still clueless. I think everybody really likes to consult and everybody really likes to give advices. Um, I thinking I, I once got an advice on finding the right balance between everything, and I think that's also something I'm living by. I'm trying. I'm working hard, but the the family is really important for me, and I'm always trying to find the right balance between my my work and my life and my family. 
that's also an important one. Mm, absolutely. What is one thing about you people wouldn't expect? Um, I think in my in my uh, elder life, people don't know and wouldn't expect me playing the drums. But that's actually one of my biggest passions. I'm I'm playing and I'm drumming on everything. And the one thing that I'm missing in my current life, in my current state in life, that I don't have enough place in my home for for a drum set, and my drum set is folded in my storage place. It's that. Uh, and sometimes people, you know, don't think of me as someone who plays the drums. What is one thing that's so important everybody needs to know? Hmm. Could you give me an example? I, I don't know if I have any examples that come to mind, but it's like something like, what, what's one of your core beliefs that you think is so important that other people should know about this belief? Or what's something that people don't know about that they should know about? Or just something that's so, that you personally deem that's really important to you that you want everyone else to know about? Okay, so it's, it's something that I keep in mind all the time. In, and, and I read a research a few years ago that we try to connect between successful people and their characterism. And the only one common denominator they found was that every successful individual was optimistic by nature. And optimistic doesn't mean, you know, stupidly optimistic, but they were optimistic. They, they always did what they could to get to the best outcome. And they were expecting a good outcome. They were not expecting the worst. So, um, you know, you expect the best, you plan for the worst. But, but the, the one thing is that the importance of staying optimistic and always look and try to find positive in everything. And again, it's not about finding the ways to smile. It's sometimes, like I said, that I always know how to find solutions. That's because I'm optimistic. I always think that there's another, another path we can go at. So I think that's the, the most important thing, to stay positive, to have a positive state of mind. I love that. And for the final question, I like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have a crystal ball. You can ask this crystal ball any question. You'll get the 100% honest answer. What is one question you want to know the answer to? Um, I think that's, very, that's more personal. We are, in this, we are in this position when we have two kids and we always think of whether, whether we want to have the, three, the third one. And now with all COVID and everything, that's something, you know, that kind of like makes you think whether you can actually take on another kid or not. And maybe asking the crystal balls how many kids I end up having. That's something I would love to know. It will help me plan. <laughs> yeah. No, like maybe I, I love that answer. The right question you were, <laughs> you were expecting, but that's the first thing that came in mind. So No, I love that. And honestly, I never have, especially with the last question, I never have any expectations with my answer because the answers, especially to that question, vary so much that I'm always curious. And I never know what people are going to say. So I really like that answer. Perfect. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I want to give you the floor. Where can the people find you? Plug anything and everything you got right now. Yeah, so I'm pretty accessible. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, Jacob, you could probably share my contact details, email address. You know, you can always email me at, as, at asaf.nevo at picogp.com. That's asaf.nevo at uh, picogp.com. Um, I'm pretty accessible. So just, just search for a soft naval at whatever network you want and you'll find me. 
Awesome. Well, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to be on this podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening, whether you've listened the entire way through or you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor, go and connect with us off. I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. If you'd like to follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram and at my social life podcast or YouTube by searching up my social life. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon.